Forget the uh, little whatever that thing is. So anyway, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4. You know, we've been talking about this for a while now. The first and 2 Kings times were tough for believers back in those days, in Elisha's day, because the influence of Jeroboam, remember him? Started all that idol worship and pushed it and pushed it on everybody and insisted on it. And then Ahab comes along and he... Uh, brings forth more idolatry, and these guys do their best, their dead-level best to corrupt the nation of Israel. And they're succeeding in many ways. And all this idolatry through the years, all kinds of disobedience through the years, uh, this nation now, Israel, is in serious spiritual decline. They're going downhill uh, at breakneck speed. The 7,000 who, who had not bowed the knee to Baal, they're in the minority at this point. And so life's not easy for them, as you can imagine. In this apostate nation. But the Lord, nevertheless, nevertheless, in this time, shows himself strong on their behalf. As the Lord always shows himself strong on the behalf of those who put their trust in him. We're in the final section of 2 Kings chapter 4. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on verses 38 to 44, the final verses in the chapter. We've already looked at three miracles in this chapter. Tonight, we're going to cover the final two, five miracles in all in this chapter. There's a common denominator in the final two miracles in verses 38 to 44, and that common denominator is food. Eight times the word, some form of the verb to eat is used. And uh, why, why these two accounts about food? Well, it shows us that the very basics of life matter to the Lord. The very basics of life matter to God. The very basics of our lives uh, matter to God. We don't think that, that, that God thinks about those things, do we? But he does. Or else he would not have said in Matthew 6, when you pray, say, give us this day our daily bread. He told us to pray that way. As I've already said throughout this chapter, God's people matter to him. You matter to God. And this is what this chapter is all about. And we have another, two more illustrations in these verses and the two miracles. Two miracles. First of all, the miracle of purified food. And secondly, the miracle of multiplied food. Purified food, multiplied food. First of all, the miracle of purified food. Look at verse 38. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to the servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. That sounds good. Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds. And they came and sliced them into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat. As they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in the pot. They were unable to eat. But he said, Now bring meal. He threw it into the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. As we look at this miracle of purified food, I want you to notice, first of all, God's people live under the curse just like everybody else. Verse 38. God's people live under the curse of sin just like everybody else. Verse 38 says what? There was a famine in the land. And usually that is a judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. said that back in Leviticus 26, back in Deuteronomy 28. One of, the, one of the judgments God said, I'm going to pour out on you as a nation, if you disobey me, is there's going to be famine. And this time of Israel, they're very disobedient. The disobedience knows no bounds in this time. Guess who gets to suffer the consequences of this judgment? God's people. They get to suffer it. You know, if the nation of Israel is suffering famine, so is everybody else. Sinners and saints alike, doesn't matter. They all partake of it. Why? Because they live there, and the famine is no respecter of persons. 
So they get to suffer too. Some years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but a hurricane came through Tampa. There was four or five hurricanes brewing. One of them was supposed to go through Punta Gorda, and it kind of turned a little bit and ended up coming through. Well, some of it came through Tampa at any rate. And uh, as a result, our neighborhood, the circle that we live on, lost power for four days. Four days, no power. No air conditioning. This is August, September. Very hot. No air conditioning, no water, no electricity, no nothing. So the food began to, you know, kind of get bad in the refrigerators and so on. People would come to our house in the neighborhood, and we'd all get together. Why does everybody always come to our house in the neighborhood? Like, what do you, do you think we have something here, people, for you to eat or what? They came to our house. We talked. I don't know if you, if you remember this or not. And uh, we played games by the candlelight on our kitchen table and, and these kind of things, talked. You know, there were believers in that neighborhood and unbelievers, as there is today. And uh, the believers did not escape the effects of the hurricane just because they were believers. Guess what? We had to, as my neighbor was sleeping on his roof, I believe, at one point, and also on his uh, hammock outside, we were experiencing the problems from that as well. We all live under the curse of sin. Believers do not escape this. In war-torn countries, Christians there, as well as non-Christians, suffer because of the fact that they're under siege. In third world nations, believers and unbelievers suffer because of poverty and different things there. Romans 8, 22 through 23 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but guess who? We ourselves, right? Who's we? Ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the believers, right? We groan inwardly, it says, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Mike's talking about adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So Christians suffer just like anybody else in this world. The point is the sufferings of this present age affect God's people. They affect God's people. The famine in 2 Kings 4 affected the sons of the prophets. We've been talking about the sons of the prophets. They're affected by this famine. Now, when we read the word famine in, in the Bible, we Americans really, we don't, understand, we don't get that. We hear of it. We acknowledge it intellectually. We don't know it, what it is. We've never experienced it. But they depended on their crops, crops for survival. You know, it wasn't a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. They couldn't run down to Papa John's Pizza, you know, and get a spicy Italian pizza and garlic Parmesan bread, cinnamon pull-aparts, you know. They couldn't do that. I mean, they, they, it was a matter of, of life, and they might starve to death. There was no place like Papa John's around. They might starve to death if they didn't eat their crops. This is a serious situation, very serious you know, we, we as believers, we have to expect these things in life. We have to expect that we're going to encounter this kind of thing. It's not just because, because we're, we're believers. We don't escape this. We participate. This is our lot. Over in Hebrews 11, you can turn there if you want, but I'll just read it to you. Hebrews 11.30. Uh, this came up in Sunday school today, and I thought about this. Hebrews 11.32. You know, the people of faith, they experience great victories in their life, tremendous victories, tremendous faith. They exhibited, and, 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 but they also had problems. Don't forget that part of it. Hebrews 11.32, what shall I more say? Time would fail to tell me of all these great people like David and Samuel and so on, who by faith they conquered kingdoms, they performed acts of righteousness, they obtained promises, they shut the mouths of lions, it says. They quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, they became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight, 
women received back their dead by resurrection. That's, we read about this in 2 Kings 4. We like that part, don't we? All the great things they did. We, but this is not so great in verse 36. And others experience what? Mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. We were talking about Isaiah this morning. As Mike made reference to a few times in his message. Sawn in two. Possibly Isaiah was sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. These are believers. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Even as I say this, we can't understand this, right? We don't go through this. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Man, all these problems. We don't escape these burdens in life. We don't escape these heartaches just because we're believers. Paul had a desire to depart and be with Christ because that was far better, right? Leave the sin-cursed world and go be with Christ. That's far better. But he had to remain on because it was more necessary for the believers, right? For him to remain on in the sin-cursed world. So we live here, right? We live here. And we could call this planet we live on, in light of the universe we live in, we could call this a bad neighborhood. This is like living in a bad neighborhood, right? This place, this, this planet we live on. We're surrounded by crime, right, and war, and suffering, and disease, and misery, and depression, and, and sickness, all kinds of things like this. So what is a believer to do? Be a testimony to unbelievers. Be a testimony to other believers, right? Be that way, and put your trust in the Lord while we're living in the bad neighborhood here. The song says, Amazing Grace says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, grace will lead me home. It's like the song we sang tonight. says that we're weary in this world. Uh, came upon a midnight clear. Yeah, there's many things that make us weary. So God's people live under the curse. Don't forget that. You live under the curse just like everybody else. You're not exempt from it. You're going to experience all kinds of problems. Secondly, God's people are subject to deception just like everybody else. God's people are subject to deception just like everybody else. Verse 39. As they set this guy out, one to gather herbs, herbs and found a wild vine and threw he didn't know he knew not what into the pot and they said oh man of god there's death in the pot they were unable to eat you know the guy they sent out to look for herbs might have been a bad choice <laughs> he gathered wild gourds some kind of a plant that appeared to be edible but actuality actually was not edible it could be this prophet was uh, who gathered the, the gourds was not exactly a botanist maybe that's the case it's funny i like matthew henry's comment matthew henry says the sons of the prophets, it seems, were better skilled in divinity rather than natural philosophy and read their Bibles more than their herbals. Well, that's a good thing. That's the way it should be. Um, sons of the prophets should be reading their Bibles more than things about herbs, herbs and so on. The prophets may, may not have been expert on herbs, in other words, but all kidding aside, they probably participated in, in these kind of things in their lives just like anybody else because that's what the way it was back then. And that a culture was an agrarian culture that had... They farmed and so on. David, who became a king, first was what? A shepherd, right? Elisha became a great prophet. What was he at first? He was plowing in the fields. These guys weren't ignorant of these things. The fact is, prophets can be fooled just like anybody else. Prophets, even prophets can be fooled. First Kings 13, a true prophet of God goes about his mission just like God says, pronounces a judgment on the people there, as God said, but then he's deceived by an old prophet who had compromised through the years. This good prophet of God is deceived by an old prophet. 
And that fruit in the garden looked good to Eve, Eve right? But she didn't know, or, or she, she should have known, when she partook of it, it was going to mean death. Satan deceived her. All believers are warned against the deceptions of Satan. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity to Christ. We're subject to deception. Now you say, well, the deception in 2 Kings 4 is not spiritual. It's in the world of nature. It's not a spiritual deception. True, but this mistake almost cost all the prophets their lives. Almost all of them died. Think of the spiritual damage that would have been done had all these guys died by this poison food, by this error that this guy committed, an error. The country's already given over to idolatry. This would, Israel needed this salt. They needed this light provided by these prophets, and yet they would be, that would be snuffed out. This is a serious mistake being made here. And don't give me, you know, the, the current hyper-Calvinistic view of God being presented these days. Oh, nothing we do matters. That's not true. It's not what the Bible says. Every, what we do does matter. The proper biblical view is this. God is sovereign and man is responsible, right? How many times have we said this here? Don't forget the man is responsible part. Now, what if we had a potluck dinner here at our church? How many of you love potluck dinners here at the church? And we had spoiled food. And everybody got sick. That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? What if we had potluck dinner here at church and every single person in the church got sick and died? This church is wiped out, right? No more church here. You ever had food poisoning? I had. I've had it. We went to a restaurant. Still remember the restaurant? And, uh, of course, this was years ago. I ate like I was out of my mind, like I always used to do. And uh, I am still tempted to do that. The, the thing that, and a lot of us got sick in the family, the thing that we all ate that was in common was corn. Never forget that. Of course, I ate a ton of it, right? I thought I was going to die that night. I don't know. I don't think I've ever experienced a greater pain in my life than that. I felt like someone was stabbing me in the stomach the entire night. That's how it felt. Bad. Very bad. The prophets, they all sit down for this nice potluck dinner, right? But their luck is running out. They don't realize this, but they realize soon enough there's something wrong with this food. It's poison. They said to Elijah, oh man of God, there is death in the pot. As soon as they taste it, there's something wrong here. We're going to die if we eat this. Can't, can't eat it. Now, I've heard of a, de- a dessert called death by chocolate. <laughs> I'd much prefer that death to this one right here. This could have been their last supper. This could have been their last supper. It could have ended right here and there. But again, this is a result of a fallen world we live in. It's beset with deception of all kinds. You know this. You should know this. If you're discerning, deception is everywhere, is it not? It's all over the place. Even prophets can be fooled. And if they can, so can you and I. We can be fooled. We are fallible. Only the Lord's infallible. Now, that does not mean we have to fall prey to deception. I said we're subject to it. We're liable to it. But we don't have to be conquered by it. It's everywhere. Everywhere you go, there's, there's deception of all kinds. You don't have to be conquered by it. Just as the prophet should have been more careful, careful in his choice of herbs, we should be careful with the choices we make on a daily basis. Content you hear in sermons, whether it's from this pulpit or from the television set or from the radio or from blog spots or from uh, uh, Facebook or whatever it might be, those things have to be discerned. You have to be a discerning hearer, a discerning reader. Don't believe everything you see and hear and read. Don't ever do that. You've got to get to the bottom of it. You've got to filter everything you see 
through the word of God or you're going to be deceived. And if you believe something that's false and you spread that teaching, guess what? You've done great harm, spiritual harm to others, to other believers even. You know, this prophet almost killed his spiritual brothers because he was deceived. Beware of deception. It's, it's all over the place. And so uh, God's people are subject to deception just like anybody else's. Thirdly, God's people are cared for by God unlike everybody else. <clears throat> God's people are cared for by God unlike everybody else, verse 41. But he said, now bring meal. He threw it in the pot, and they said, pour it out for the people that you may, they, they may eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. Israel is in famine, and, and that means, as I've said, that the people, people of God are also in the famine. They have to deal with it like everybody else. Even like the people who resist the Lord, they have to deal with it too. But there's a difference. There's a difference between the people of God and the people of the world. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows you if you belong to him. He knows you in a personal way. He knows you intimately. He knows you're one of his. The Lord sees people in their difficult. He sees his people in their difficulties. He knows our heartaches. He knows the misery we face. I remember uh, I just thought of Exodus 2 where God looked down on the children of Israel and they're groaning and they're crying out to him and he, and he, sees, and he says he looks down and sees their misery that they're in and he understands their misery. You know, he may allow some of us to suffer for a while even. He might allow us to suffer. He might allow some of his people even to die for his sake, but it would be for his sake. But he knows his own, he cares for his own, he loves for his own. <clears throat> so we have another miracle, the fourth miracle in this chapter. The food is unpoisoned and made edible because God cares for his people. That's the miracle of purified food. And then look at the miracle of multiplied food, verse 42 to 44. Now a man came from Baal Shalishah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh, grains of, fresh ears of grain in his sack, and he said, give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, what, will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. I want to ask two questions of this text. Number one, what was involved in this miracle? And number two, what does this miracle point to? First of all, what's involved in this miracle? Two things. First of all, the faithfulness of God's servant. God's faithful servant in verse 42. In verse 42, an unnamed man comes from a place called Baal Shalishah, somewhere in Ephraim. And he appears out of nowhere, and suddenly he brings a supply of food to Elisha. Now, whether there was a famine still, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what connection this miracle has with the previous one. It doesn't say anything about what happened in between. But based on the, 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 lot of the, the amount of food this guy brought, or the plentiful amount of food, at least, at least for him, it doesn't seem like there may have been a famine. I don't know. But nevertheless, he, comes, he makes his way to Elisha. Why? According to Numbers 18 and other passages like that, it says the first ripe fruits were to be given to the priests, and that's what this guy brought, the first ripe fruits. Now, unfortunately, the priests of Elisha's day were serving whom? Baal, right? Not the Lord. So in all likelihood, this man who's obviously a faithful servant of God because he is seen, as seen by his actions in this great time of apostasy, he's trying to serve the Lord, he's doing the right thing. He wants to obey the Lord in a matter of giving. He knows the priests are corrupt in Israel. He knows Levites are often corrupt. So what to do? Well, he decides to take this offering that God has demanded to be taken by his people 
to a genuine man of God. He takes it to Elisha. That's what the text calls Elisha again, by the way, a man of God. That's in contrast to others who are not men of God, like the priest of Baal, right? Uh, so what is this? this man does the best he can in obeying the Lord. He does the best, the next best thing. I'm going to take it to Elisha. He's the, man of, he's the only man of God I know around here anyway. Takes it to him. Another reference to one of the 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You know, as usual, the prophets of the Lord are hungry, right? And it's time to eat. It may have been some time since they last eat because Elijah recognizes their need for food. Look at verse 43. He says, give to the people that they may eat. And the recipients of the food are probably all likelihood sons of the prophets because even though it says they're called the people, they're called 100 men, probably the prophets because of the context of chapter 4. But notice the starting point. The starting point for this miracle, it's the food brought to Elijah out of a simple obedience to the Lord. This guy is simply obeying God, and that's the starting point of this miracle. The man of God is going to use that offering to provide food for the people. You know, the Lord works through obedient people to do his work. Get that. The Lord works through what? Obedient people to do his work, right? He's not working through disobedient people. He works through, now God can work through anybody, of course, and, he, and we know this in his sovereignty, but he works through obedient people. He works through our giving to meet needs, does he not? He works through our giving to meet needs. He works through our praying to accomplish his will. He works through our scriptural meditation to renew our minds. That's what he says to do. And so let's not get away from this idea of the importance of obedience to the Lord, very important. The man from Baal, Shalishah, he gets no name recognition, but he just simply obeys the Lord. He's doing what God wants, and the Lord will work through that obedience. You know, I thought about this. <clears throat> I couldn't help but think of, as I often do, but in this case I thought of it. I couldn't help but think of George Mueller, the man who cared for, uh, cared for 10,000 orphans in his life. He would often pray. People would come, and they would bring food to his doorsteps for the orphanage, for the children, or they'd give him money for the orphanage, for other necessities for the children. The Lord used those faithful, obedient servants to provide for the needs of his people. We just need to simply walk in obedience to God, to the word of God, and God will work. God will work. We need to be faithful servants of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, the promise of God's word. What was involved in this miracle? Faithfulness of God's servant. Secondly, the promise of God's word. Verse 44, he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over what? According to the word of the Lord, it says. Elisha gave the command to give what that man had brought to feed 100 men. Now, that would require a good bit of food. And that wasn't, what he had was not enough food. It wasn't enough food to feed 100 people. You can hear it in the attendant's voice. The, the attendant, the servant, probably, in all likelihood, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, he says, look at verse 43, I love the statement, what, well, I said this before 100 men? <laughs> this is not enough. Yeah, it's great that there's food here, but this is not enough. It's kind of like, you know, people, a ton of people come to the house to eat, and you wonder, hey, is there enough food here for everybody to eat? You know, this is woefully inadequate. It's not going to feed everybody, not by a long shot. You know, the amount of food as it is is not enough. It's just not enough. How often is this true of us, though? Our supplies are so inadequate. We look at the church budget on the one hand, <laughs> look at the offerings on the other, and we say to ourselves, how do we do this ministry? How do we do this? Now, I'm not crying poverty here, okay? I can, fortunately, we can look back over 10 years and say the Lord has met our needs because he's faithful, right? As a matter of fact, he's met our needs in a very unique, extremely unique way in church history, I would even say. That's true. 
That doesn't mean that we should stop giving. God's people should be giving out of obedience to God, but the Lord nevertheless is faithful. I like the old song we used to sing, <clears throat> little is much when God is in it. When, when, when God, God can take a little bit and, and multiply, right? Thank God that though we are, we're inadequate, and thank God that though we're inadequate, he's adequate. He's adequate. Though our resources may be slim, his resources are abundant. He can make that which is deficient sufficient, right? We're deficient. He can make it sufficient. Well, after the doubting attendant gives his perspective on the food, hey, this is not enough, Elisha says, give to the people that they may eat. That's contradictory, right? The one says, we don't have enough. <clears throat> Elijah says, give it to them that they may eat. Why? For thus says the Lord, Elisha said, they shall eat and have what? Some left over. They're going to eat. That's what the Lord says. Just do it. That's what he said to do. What is that? That's the promise to the word of God, right? God has promised, made a promise in his word. Elisha is not just saying this, saying this on his own authority. He's basing it on the authority of the word of God. That's why he's so bold. We have an inadequate supply of food. I don't care. Nevertheless, give it to the people because God says they're going to eat and have some left over. That's what he says. And if the Lord makes a promise, you can rest assured he's going to keep it because his word is trustworthy. That is why Elisha is so confident in his circumstances, so confident to do, to do what God said. And by the way, that is why it is necessary for you and I to be in the word of God because that's where our confidence comes from. We're not confident in ourselves. We can be confident in what, what the Lord says. That's where our confidence lies. The word of God is authoritative. If he says something in his word, he's going to do it, okay? Now, understand my emphasis. I'm not saying that God's going to rain down, if you're hungry, manna from heaven here. I'm not saying that, you know, because even when they went in the promised land, that stopped. That manna stopped, and they had to go to work for their living. But I'm saying that the promises of the word of God are true. And you can count in the promises of the word of God. That's what I'm saying. What was the result of all this? Look at verse 44 again. He said it before them. They ate and they had some left over, it says. hundred men not only ate, they ate well and they had plenty to go, plenty to go around, even leftovers. Some people wouldn't like the fact there was leftovers, by the way. They wouldn't eat them again, sadly enough. I think it's pretty good that they had leftovers, just as the word of God had promised. That's similar to what happened in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 7. Remember the widow woman whose children had to work for, to pay off the debt, and yet God came through and gave her an increased supply of oil. And 2 Kings 4, 7 says she not only paid the debts, but she had plenty to live on the rest of her life. She had plenty of leftovers. The Lord provided in an abundant measure. All this because the word of God, God declared it would be so. What else does this show us? It shows us this. That, the man, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're in a section teaching about the Lord's provision for his physical needs of his people. And yet, here we see the word of God brought to bear on those circumstances. You know, if we, if we don't eat food physically, we're going to starve to death. And yet the word of God is brought into this situation. And if we don't take, partake of the word of God, the spiritual food, we're going to be weak spiritually and, and not be able to help anyone, and you're going to be running to people all the time with your problems. How do I solve this problem? What do I do? You should be running to the Word of God. That's where the confidence and the strength come from. That's where your spiritual strength comes from. You're starving yourself to death by neglecting the Word of God. How are we going to become spiritually mature if we don't immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and the promises of God's Word? So what was involved in this miracle, number one? 
the faithfulness of God's servant. Number two, the promises of God's word. And then what does this miracle point to? What does it point to? Well, it points to Christ. We would be blind not to see that. Mike talked this morning about where's Christ in the Old Testament. I personally believe he's, this is a, a, a signal to us to point to Christ from this passage. Anyone who's read the Gospels immediately thinks of Christ, right? And the feedings of the 4,000 to 5,000. The account here directly points to those Gospels. Second Kings 42 to 44 is a preview of what's to come in the New Testament. So I ask you now to turn to Matthew chapter 15. Turn to Matthew 15. Verse 32. Stephen earlier read the account in Matthew 14 of the feeding of 5,000. And we can read in different accounts here, but I've chosen to read this account of the feeding of 4,000 in, in, in Matthew 15, 32. It shows, this, this shows that just as the, uh, God of the Old Testament care for his people, the Christ of the New Testament cares for his people. The Lord always cares for his people in every generation, regardless of what it is. Look at verse 32 and notice, notice first the compassion of Christ in verse 32. The compassion of Christ. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have re- remained with me now three days. They have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. You know, who says the Lord doesn't care about our physical needs? If you're reasoning from the scripture, he certainly does. Jesus showed compassion to people who were hungry here. They were there to hear him teach. They were here, there to be healed, and yet they had run out of room or food, rather. And he's concerned about that. What kind of what a, what a great savior! He's concerned about their needs. He not only cares for our spiritual needs, but our physical needs as well. And he says, "I love the statements here. Think about those statements." He says, "I don't want to send them away hungry. I don't want to do that. I want them to eat something. They might faint on the way. What if they faint on the way? I can't let them go like this. I have to take care of these people. That's a great statement, isn't it?" Shows the great compassion of Christ. And it was not only the, New, the Old Testament <clears throat> that he was concerned about his people. Not only in the first century that he was concerned about his people. It's always, it's forevermore that he's concerned about his people. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may find or rather receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The compassion-filled Christ of the Gospels is still the compassion-filled Christ of today. He cares for his people. And then notice, secondly, the inadequacy of human resources. The inadequacy of human resources, verse 33 and 34. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. Now, where have we seen this before? How about 2 Kings 4? Remember the attendant of Elisha? He says, what, will I set this before 100 men? I don't have much food here. And now in the Matthew account, he says, where shall we get so many loaves in this desolate place? The crowd is too large. All we have here is seven measly loaves, some fish. It's not much. We can't do anything with this. In other words, we can't pull this off with our pathetic resources. That's true. They can't do it. These are the same disciples, by the way, that witnessed the account Stephen read in Matthew 14 of the feeding of 5,000 with five loaves, loaves and two fishes, two fish. 
They saw that. They saw him multiply that. And they saw him feed 5,000 plus people. And yet they didn't learn the lesson. They didn't get it. The lesson, what, what lesson? Little is much when God is in it. He can do this. God can do it. Yes, our resources are, ad- are inadequate. Yes, they are. Yes, we're inadequate, right? But nevertheless, we can't, we can't, we can't have our own strength, strength through God's word. We can't do it. But the fact is the Lord can work through us. That's where he shines. He can work through us to show that the power is his, not, not ours. And so, yes, we're inadequate in all that we have. Thirdly, notice the power of Christ, verse 35. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. See all the similarities between this and the passage in 2 Kings 4? This type of miracle was first done in the Old Testament by a man of God. And now it's done in a larger scale by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And there's leftovers. Leftovers, just like there was in the Old Testament. More than enough to feed the crowd. So the God who created the world of the world and had and had people, uh, he created the world of people, he also now creates food to feed these people. His power is just unlimited. Unlimited power. 4,000 men fed in addition to who knows how many men, women, how many children, nobody knows. And just as we are deficient again, we're deficient, but Christ is sufficient for his people. We're talking about the sufficiency of Christ tonight. 2 Kings is a chapter with five miracles that have to do with God's people. They all have to do with God's people. There was the widow, right, who was in debt. She was in debt, and, she, and yet she was at the point of desperation, yet the Lord provided for her and for her sons. Then there was the wealthy married woman who was hospitable to Elisha, and he comes, and a second miracle is performed. He says, you're going to have a son, and God provides a son for her. But then the son dies, and then there's a third miracle. The woman has faith and won't let go of Elisha, and God raises the son from the dead. And then we have a fourth miracle, the miracle of the purified food. And then we have a fifth miracle, the miracle of the multiplied food. Why these five miracles back-to-back like this? It's to show the Lord can handle any and every emergency, every issue, every problem, every difficulty that you face. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. He loves us. He has compassion upon us. He cares for his people. He can be trusted. As one writer put it, he has power over debt, over death, over danger, and over deficiency. God has his power. Where there's hopelessness, there is, the, Lord can, the Lord can work. Where there's no, seemingly no answer in sight, the Lord can work. The accounts in 2 Kings uh, chapter 4 are designed to show that the Lord is there in our greatest hour of need. Also, we're gonna, we learn here that we're probably not going to be, our lives not going to be a bed of roses. There'll be difficulties along the way. God's people are going to endure difficulties that force us to look to our Savior. But here's why. That is why I believe the Lord places us in these difficult circumstances. So we will look to him. Adversity teaches us to look to our Savior. And our, and our Savior is more than adequate. He's more than adequate for those who put their trust in him. You can trust him tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word again. Lord, as, we're, as we learn again of your faithfulness and your love, your power, your compassion, uh, Lord, we learn of Christ and, and of his greatness, and we're always glad to see that and, thank, and thankful that we can learn more about him. Pray tonight as we go, Lord, we'll trust you more each and every day. We'll trust you this week, and with all the who knows what we're going to be faced this week, give us grace.
to deal with these things, to look to you always, Lord. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.